Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Well, tonight we want to continue in uh, kind of hopscotching through uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke 9 tonight as we uh, come together. And uh, Luke 9 at the very end, looking at the, the cost of following Jesus, looking at uh, this idea of excuses. And I uh, was, was thinking of some of our, our more uh, memorable and, and popular excuses, things like the dog ate my homework, things like my alarm clock failed to go off, I ran into some unexpected traffic, or the classic, I forgot. To make excuses is to be human. And in our passage this evening, I believe we find a window into the mind of our Lord and how he views discipleship. We have three brief encounters that shed light on the cost of following Jesus. We also find this passage a mirror into our own excuse-making ways that will prompt us to repent, to grow, and to follow the one who makes no excuses for his mission to seek and to save the lost. I'm actually going to pick, start reading Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Father, Father, once again I would ask that the words of my mouth and the, the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, wouldn't it be great if, as a parent, you could say to ask, ask one of your sons, why did you hit your brother? To which he replies, Father, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner and I lack self-control. Please forgive me. <laughs> or the mother who confronts her child for failing to clean up the kitchen. The child replies, Sorry, mother, for my negligence. Please forgive me, I will clean it up right away. Or to the teen who comes in well past her curfew 
says to her parents, forgive me. I was self-absorbed and I disregarded your authority. Rare. Rare is the first impulse, a humble confession out of the mouths of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Our first parents brought upon us all a fall, a fallen nature, in which we are prone to make excuses. The devil made me do it. Excuses are an expression of self-will, of selfishness. But the call of discipleship would have us leave excuse-making behind and follow our Savior on a glorious mission. Our passage echoes back to Jesus' words earlier in chapter 9. When he said, come after me, he who would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. In response to these powerful words, the disciples go on to encounter the transfiguration, only to go on to fail to cast out an evil spirit. The disciples would then hear Jesus predict his own death, only to begin an argument over who was the greatest. And then in verse 51, we have the transition point in the Gospel of Luke, where it says that Jesus As the time had come for him to be taken up, set his face to go to Jerusalem. A reference back to Isaiah 50, where the Messiah sets his face like flint to pursue the Lord's will. There we read that Jesus sent his messengers into Samaria to make preparations preparations for his visit. And unlike most Jews, Jesus did not avoid the Samaritans. But James and John, in response to the rejection, when the Samaritans refused to receive Jesus because he was going on to Jerusalem, earn their nickname, Sons of Thunder, by wanting to call down fire from heaven like Elijah to consume this village. Well, Jesus is not slighted. He is not offended. He offers no retaliation to the Samaritans. Rather, he rebukes his disciples and takes them on to a new village. In chapter 10 of Luke, Jesus will give us instructions on how to handle rejection for those who refuse to receive the gospel message. But in our short passage, we want to look at these three encounters, three would-be disciples whom Jesus meets on his way towards his final destiny on earth. We want to look at, first, self-centered excuses— Then look at others-centered excuses. And finally, the end of excuses. Now notice that the first man whom Jesus meets really doesn't offer excuses. In fact, he's eager, he's enthusiastic about following Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. He's a teacher, he gathers crowds, he heals people, he casts out demons. This man wants to be where the action is. He's got the zeal of a protester, of coming to a political rally. He's confident and wants to follow Jesus anywhere that Jesus goes. But Jesus senses an unreadiness in this man, a naivete. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets, This man does not know what he is getting himself into. Jesus perceives that this man has not 
counted the cost. You know, many missionaries go, many candidates go, and they serve for a few years and return home, having been unprepared for the great task, the great work. It, it, it's an endurance race. It's a marathon, and one must count the cost before engaging in any great mission. Well, to this man who lacks readiness and training, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, at this point, has no residence. He has no forwarding address. He has a one-way ticket to Jerusalem. He has no comforts of home. He is a man on a mission. This is war. David, after his moral failure with Bathsheba, tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, back from the battlefront. David tries to send Uriah home to take ownership of the situation. But Uriah, a man of integrity, refuses. David tries to fill him up with wine, but Uriah still sleeps on the ground with the servants because Joab and the army are at war without the comforts of home. For Uriah, there will be no excuses. So David sends him back with a death warrant in his hand. This man whom Jesus meets, for him, war is glorious, but he has not seen any action. He's oblivious to the freedoms and the comforts he must forfeit. Jesus left the comforts of heaven to come and bear the burdens on earth As a baby, there was no room for him in the end. As a grown man, he was turned away even by Samaritans. He and his disciples would not be stopping at resorts on the way to the Jerusalem Ritz-Carlton. The disciples had left everything to follow him. They gave up certain rights. Something hard for us Americans to let go of our rights and our freedoms. And I believe here the call of discipleship it manifests itself in many ways. Some of us are called to give up many rights. Now, I don't believe discipleship necessarily means we deny owning property, saving for retirement, going on trips and simple pleasures. But it is a reminder here that the Christian life makes no promise of comfort or ease. It's as if God would say to us, I love you and have a difficult plan for your life. Counter what our world promises us. We're reminded here that soldiers do not call the shots. They take orders from their superior officers. And so if you would follow Jesus, remember that you were under command. Two years ago, I had the privilege of visiting house churches halfway around the world. And I stayed in a really nice hotel and had the privilege of touring the worship site of these faithful believers and touring a Christian school they had just begun, had the privilege of teaching these saints about biblical leadership. They were the lovely, God-fearing, sacrificial Christians. And today, both of those buildings have been demolished by the governing authorities, and some of those leaders are in prison. You know that in months past, uh, Chinese house church leaders have sent us uh, more than 20,000 face masks, some of which we've used in our worship. 
a gift of believers, learning to serve and give back to those who have given to them. At least one of those leaders has been imprisoned for um, supposedly committing conspiracy against the communist government. The persecuted church in the world reminds us of the fact that we're at war. It gives us perspective. And if we would follow Jesus, we must be prepared to deny ourselves, to lay aside our privileges and our rights. The mission field, whether overseas or right here in our own backyards, is hard and long. It takes preparation. We must be committed to seeking long-term results. We live in a culture that demands its rights. The sin nature has a tendency to resist the rules applying to me. But the call of discipleship is to deny self. The best world-performing athletes don't make excuses because excuses only tear down performance and break apart teams. The best businesses, the best leaders in the world of business refuse to make excuses holding one another accountable to performance standards. And so I believe that in Jesus' message here is a call for no excuses, to refuse to lower the bar, but to keep it in a way that honors the Lord. And as we struggle to persevere and endure and follow, rather than take our excuses, God will take our confession. He will take our humility. He will take our repentance. He will enable us to repent of excuses, enable us to respond with humble obedience as he gives us grace to fulfill our obligations to our spouses, to our children, to our employers, to our church community. Following Jesus cuts against the grain of the world. It makes us stand out like oddballs. We may look ridiculous, Reminded from Pilgrim's Progress where Christian tells his family, his wife and children, that he feels called to go to the celestial city. And they think that he's a madman. His wife lays him down in bed thinking that he is ill. But the call to heaven compels him to flee the city of destruction, to take up this dangerous journey, to endure life-threatening trials in order that he might enter eternal life. His wife and children soon follow thereafter by his example. Well, Jesus meets two other men on his journey to Jerusalem. The second and third would be disciples represent others centered excuses. For them, the delay of discipleship is caused in somewhat by family obligations. Notice that Jesus tells the second man, Follow me. A clear command of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But unlike Peter and company who dropped their nets, this man asked for a rain check to first bury his father. Now Jesus' response sounds kind of harsh to our modern ears. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And some may wonder, is Jesus violating the fifth commandment? Does he not want this man to honor his father? I don't believe that's the case here in this context. Rather, Jesus is calling out this man's failure to prioritize the kingdom of God and the kingdom mission. 
He has a false sense of obligation. It is very clear to me that for this man, in this situation, his father is alive. Because the Jewish custom at that time was to bury their dead within 24 hours. And if his father was dead, he would be with the family who would gather around the dead body to keep vigil, to mourn and pray until the burial. He would not be talking with Jesus. He would be with the family. So this father was perhaps days, weeks, months, maybe even years away from death. And so Jesus would compel him to follow to leave his father into the care of others. Jesus calls him. He sees gifts in him. The ability to proclaim the kingdom of God. And that's what he tells him to do. Just consider the clarity to hear Jesus telling you what to do. Something many of us long for. Young people looking for, searching for the will of God. And here's a man who is being clearly called by Jesus to be a preacher, to be a proclaimer of the kingdom. I know not all of us are called to be preachers or missionaries. Many are called to be senders, to be supporters, to take care of the home front. But if you're called to mission, do it. If, if you wrestle with what, what is God calling you to do with your life, examine yourself. What are your gifts what are your opportunities? What, what are the, the gifts and the talents that other people in the, the household of, of faith observe in you? As you look for affirmation, as you look for guidance, consider what God may be calling you to do globally and locally. In my own case, I remember being pre-med most of my years in college. I even almost applied to medical school, but I realized I lacked a passion liked a passion for medicine, but had a growing burden for ministry. And when telling my parents that I was no longer going to med school, but considering ministry, it was hard. It was disappointing to them. And for me, I had to wrestle with with breaking off from a, a false sense of obligation academically. And thankfully, my parents are very happy in my calling today. I think we can take away from this second example to not let false obligations hinder our discipleship. It's making excuses for kingdom service reveals misguided priorities. Where the first man was too quick to promise, the second man was too slow to perform. He wanted to negotiate his terms of discipleship. His, on, his desire to honor his commitment to his family was first before following Jesus. Do not let family obligations or work obligations or any other obligation allow you to put Jesus off. Follow him first and foremost in however he calls you to serve. The third man tells Jesus that he will follow, but first let him say goodbye to his family. That seems reasonable. Didn't Elisha ask the same from Elijah? stopping his plow in the tracks, sacrificed his oxen and burnt it over the yokes and had a great feast for his family. We think Jesus had this in mind as he makes a reference to putting the hand at the plow. In this image, we know that 
to plow a straight line, one must stay fixed, focused on a fixed point straight ahead. When you're running a plow, you can't look back lest you zigzag over the field and the plain. In Elisha's case, he made a definite break. There would be no turning back. But Jesus perceives in this third man that if he were to go back and say goodbye to his family, he would be lured into a false obligation, cooling the fire, tempted to stay. There was something else first in his heart. And so Jesus commanded him to follow right away. Like a soldier in battle or a man on the job, he needed to fulfill his duty right away. Looking back is dangerous. Looking back with longing at our former way of life, looking back at our worldly ways can hinder us, even shipwreck our discipleship. When we are tempted to go back to our old sin patterns, we must cut them off, relying upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to keep our eyes fixed on him. I believe there's a corollary to this principle. Even as Jesus calls his disciples to put him first above family family obligations and other worldly obligations, I would also say that ministry is not an excuse to ignore or neglect family or other legitimate obligations. You know, when I have filled out a number of missionary references for missionary workers or ministry workers have to have a, a reference from a pastor from a missions organization. And one of the common questions on those forms is, is this applicant running away from something? Is he or she trying to hide something and trying to run away from a problem? Ministry is not a haven for people who don't want to deal with their problems. The Christian life is not an escape from dealing with difficulty. And furthermore, you cannot use ministry as an excuse to neglect parents or others, even missionaries, take off time to care or to minister to their dying loved ones. I was reminded, too, by one of our workers in China that uh, a Chinese evangelist who had boasted and only seen his wife and child two weeks out of the year, so zealous was he for ministry. There's a problem there. Even our calling and our zeal to be faithful in ministry, there's also a calling to be faithful to our own families in a way that's honoring to the Lord. But the second and third would-be disciple in our passage reminds us that our first obligation is to the Lord, not to family, not to others. But if we would take up our cross, we may endure scorn from family, from loved ones, we may endure scorn from co-workers and friends who just can't imagine why you would leave behind your profession to take up such a call. But even when the world doesn't understand, we make sacrifices to glorify the Lord our God. I think we can see ourselves in these three excuse-making encounters. We have regrets. I'm sure most, if not all of us, have missed opportunities. We all fall short, but where we fall short, Jesus shines. We follow a Savior 
who made no excuses. He did not give his father excuses when he was called upon to take up this great mission. Though the Son of God had every reason to dismiss this most dangerous of callings, to enter into fallen humanity, to be the sinless bearer of his people's burdens, to be tortured to death at the hands of murderous and hateful enemies. There's much talk today about privilege in our culture in a socially divided nation. But the Son of God was the most privileged of all, but freely gave it up. He laid aside his privilege. He came, he veiled his glory for a season to identify with a truly oppressed people, to deliver us from the ravages of sin, and to raise us up, to seat us with him in glory in the heavenly places. Jesus never made excuses. People came to him for counsel, came to him for teaching, came to him for healing. He would make no bargain with the devil. He would not yield to the whims of man. He would make no excuses when meeting the needs of people clamoring for his attention. And the closest he ever came to making any excuse was when he asked the Father, that this cup might pass from him. But when the father answered the negative, he humbly submitted to the will of his father. Jesus came to take our punishment. He came to take our sins upon himself. And he came to take away our excuses. Self-centered excuse-making ends when we die to self, when we take up his cross and follow him. If our focus is self-preservation, we make excuses when we feel pressured and tempted. But if our focus is on God's glory, we do not need excuses. We are free to come before God in all of our weaknesses and all our failings and our frailty to ask for grace and the freedom to follow him as we keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus himself. Recently, I was reading Prince Caspian with one of my children, one of the Chronicles of Narnia tales. And in that story, the four brothers and sisters travel back to the land of Narnia hundreds of years later, to the land ruled by Aslan, the lion, the great Christ figure. In this story, the four children are needed to help the rightful heir to the throne to claim it back from an evil usurper. And the four children find themselves lost and struggling in the wilderness that they don't recognize. But then Aslan, the lion, appears. But he only appears to Lucy, the youngest of the four siblings. She sees him and she recognizes Aslan is beckoning her to follow him. And she wants to follow him, but her older three siblings can't see Aslan. And they don't believe her. And so rather than follow Aslan, Lucy pouts and in frustration follows her brothers and sisters on a futile journey. 
But about a day later, Aslan appears again. And this time, ask Lucy why she didn't follow him. And Lucy begins to proceed with a litany of excuses. Why I'm the youngest and they won't listen to me. And as she does so, and Aslan doesn't accept her excuses, Lucy realizes that she could have followed Aslan. That she didn't have to follow her brothers and sisters. She didn't have to make excuses. And as she confesses and humbles herself and repents and reconciles with Aslan, she grows bold. And she stands her ground and she appeals to her siblings that they need to follow Aslan. And sure enough, as they begin to believe her and follow Aslan, slowly he becomes visible to their eyes and they see him as well. When we stop making excuses, when we humbly follow Jesus, other people can see Jesus too. No matter what other people are doing, follow Jesus. It doesn't matter what other people think, what they tell you to do, follow Jesus. No excuses. Die daily to self. Crucify your excuse-making flesh. Renounce this excuse-making word. Because our Lord and Master will accept no excuses on the day of judgment for those who refuse to believe in him. But we have a great Lord and Savior. Follow him. Who makes no excuses to fulfill his Father's will. To offer the one way of salvation by faith in him and in him alone. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son, who followed you wholeheartedly and faithfully to the very end, to the very cross, to purchase our redemption. Help us, O Lord, to leave behind our weak and frail excuse-making ways. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, Jesus and to follow him and him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.